Good morning, everybody. Welcome again, especially if you're visiting. My name is Tim Fox. I'm the pastor here. Uh, we have been going through Leviticus. Uh, maybe good news to some of you, we are nearing the end of it. We're through most of the weird stuff. Uh, today we're going to cover Leviticus chapters 23 through 25. We're still in the middle of this section called the Holiness Code. I'm going to read parts of chapter 25. So if you have a Bible, open up to Leviticus chapter 25. I'll read a few verses starting at verse 8 and then I'll skip ahead a bit and read a few more. So Leviticus 25, 8. You shall count seven weeks of years, seven times seven years, so that the time of the seven weeks of years shall give you 49 years. Then you shall sound the loud trumpet on the tenth day of the seventh month. On the day of atonement, you shall sound the trumpet throughout all your land. And you shall consecrate the fiftieth year and proclaim liberty throughout the land to all its inhabitants. It shall be a jubilee for you when each of you shall return to his property and each of you shall return to his clan. That fiftieth year shall be a jubilee for you. In it you shall neither sow nor reap what grows of itself, nor gather the grapes from the undressed vines. For it's a jubilee. It shall be holy to you. You may eat the produce of the field. Jump down to verse 23. The land shall not be sold in perpetuity, for the land is mine. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. If your brother becomes poor and sells part of his property, then his nearest redeemer shall come and redeem what his brother has sold. If a man has no one to redeem it and then himself becomes prosperous and finds sufficient means to redeem it, let him calculate the years since he sold it and pay back the balance to the man to whom he sold it and then return to his property. But if he does not have sufficient means to recover it, then what he sold shall remain in the hand of the buyer until the year of Jubilee. In the Jubilee it shall be released and he shall return to his property. This is the word of the Lord. Let's ask for God's... Help to understand ancient property laws. Lord, thank you for speaking to us uh, in all kinds of ways, in all kinds of genres, through all kinds of people over so much time. Uh, Lord, help us this morning uh, to understand how to think more clearly about our time, about our property, about the poor. Most of all, help us to think about Jesus and the freedom that he has brought to us. We ask in his name. Amen. So we are covering today this section of Leviticus that is mainly about time. Uh, Our relationship to time is one of the things that makes us so wonderfully different than animals. My backyard chickens do not sit around all day uh, regaling each other with stories about past adventures that they had back in their glory days. Uh, They don't look forward to the upcoming football season. They don't stress out about whether or not they're going to miss a flight. We continue through the section of Leviticus on holiness, uh, on what's sacred, on what's distinct. And so now in chapter 23, you have a chapter on sacred time, and then there's an interlude in chapter 24 on sacred space, and then a final chapter from which I just read, chapter 25, another one on sacred time. All of it is meant to point us forward to the ultimate redemption of time and space in the heavenly new creation. 
when and where God will return us to the original idyllic world of the garden, but also at the same time when he will transcend everything that was so wonderful there. Leviticus 23 gives us this first pass at sacred time, which remember is ultimately trying to help us think more broadly about eternal life. Sacred time. In chapter 23, God is telling the ancient Israelites about the various festivals that he wants them to celebrate on a regular basis. The festivals are meant to help them remember something about who God is and what he's been doing for his people, about what he's doing in the world. Uh, But they also help them to look forward to what God's going to do at the end of history. Uh, This is one of the things that makes uh, the biblical way of approaching reality so different uh, than the pagan views of reality that were floating around all over the world at the time. In, in pagan thought, uh, not just in the ancient Near East, but even in, in the Far East, in pagan thought, uh, the world is following a series of cycles. Things just keep repeating themselves over and over and over again. You never really get out of it. But in the biblical way of thinking, you're moving towards a destination. Things have a climax. They're moving uh, forward until God renews everything. And so that you, this idea is behind uh, God saying, I want you to be thinking about what I've been doing. I want you to think about where we're going. There's a progress. There's a, there's a line to it. Uh, the first one, the most important one that God talks about, the first festival, you see that in verse 3 of chapter 23, God reminds the Israelites that they have to take one day a week to stop working. This is the festival that is behind all the other festivals. It's, of course, the fourth commandment. We call it the Sabbath. They were meant to rest. Uh, for Israel back then, this would have been on Saturdays, the final day of the week. But for us today, it's been moved to Sunday the first day of the week, because Jesus rose from the dead on a Sunday morning. Jesus' resurrection was a down payment, an inauguration of new creation. And so this was so significant uh, that the earliest Christians moved their day of rest and worship from the end of the week to the beginning of the week. Uh, There are lots of Christians who disagree about exactly what it means to keep the Sabbath today. Um, But for For our church, what we believe is that this is the only one of all these festivals that are still mandatory today. We are still to take a day, Sundays, out of the week for rest and worship. It's changed quite a bit in terms of what it looks like to observe it than it did for Israel on Saturdays, but we think this is something that still applies to us today. Throughout the Old Testament, this weekly Sabbath of rest and worship is explicitly tied to God creating the world. Uh, In Exodus chapter 20, the first time you hear the Ten Commandments, God says, Just like how I made the world in six days and then I rested on the seventh day, so also you are to work for six days and then rest on the seventh. It's tied to creation. And so then and now, uh, it's a day of every week when we remind ourselves that we are God's creatures. When we remind ourselves that God has made the entire world, that we are totally dependent upon Him. Uh, That's why you rest. You rest uh, because God doesn't rest. You don't have to work because God keeps working. He's the creator. He's the sustainer. Uh, But as the letter to the Hebrews reminds us in the New Testament, uh, the weekly Sabbath is also a reminder to us of the eternal rest to come beyond this world. Hebrews chapter 4 says that there remains a Sabbath rest for God's people. Whoever has entered God's rest has also rested from his works just like God did from his. Therefore, let's strive to enter that rest. Uh, The world beyond death is a world of endless rest for those who trust in Jesus, God says. And so our weekly Sabbaths now are still anticipating that day. After 
reminding the Israelites that they should take one day out of seven to rest, God also then reminds them that every year he wants them to celebrate the Passover festival. Uh, This was to be a time for them to remember and celebrate how God had delivered them from slavery in Egypt. Uh, He graciously spared their families from the wrath of the angel of death by accepting the blood of an innocent lamb in their place. Uh, The exodus from Egypt is in many ways the basic model of salvation in the entire Bible. Uh, It shows us that God is not just a creator, although he is that. Uh, It also shows us that God is a gracious redeemer. Uh, Through judgment, God rescues his people into a new creation. He gives them a fresh start. Today, we celebrate the death of Jesus as our Passover lamb, particularly as we eat and drink his body and blood in this meal that he began at the end of a Passover meal with his disciples right before he was crucified. So that's the Passover festival. Every year they had to celebrate this in the spring. And then in, starting in verse 9, you hear about a couple of annual festivals that revolve around food, about harvest, uh, being farmers and bringing in your crop. Uh, again, it's a recognition that God is creator. So the weekly Sabbath focuses on God as creator. Passover focuses on God as redeemer. We're back to festivals that focus on God being a creator, that the earth belongs to him, that we are here to cultivate it as his image-bearing stewards, uh, that our work is for him, that our resources and our wealth ultimately come from him. Uh, We don't have these annual harvest festivals anymore, but still we should be regularly acknowledging and remembering and recognizing and rejoicing that everything we have is from God. And we just give back to him what he's already given to us. Uh, In verse 23, there's a shift from the the spring festivals now to the fall festivals. Uh, And there's a reminder, don't forget to celebrate the Day of Atonement. We already covered that together. Uh, The high priest would go all the way into the holiest place of the tabernacle or the temple to offer sacrificial blood to cleanse and rescue God's people from their sin. Uh, But then in verse 33, we hear about uh, this interesting festival called the Festival of Booths or the festival of tents. Uh, God tells the Israelites, once a year, I want everybody to go camping. Everyone's going to go camping for a few days so that they will remember how God took care of the Israelites when they were wandering around in the wilderness uh, living in tents. Uh, Interestingly, God says here in, in Leviticus 23 that they should take palm branches and some other branches and put those on their tents when they go camping. Uh, And that's part of why it's significant that when Jesus comes into Jerusalem, uh, people go and grab a bunch of palm branches. That was a symbolic gesture. They were uh, riffing on this theme from the Festival of Booths that God's Messiah was coming to bring his people into all the joy of the promised land. They didn't just grab random branches. There's a, a meaning behind that. And so once again, this is a festival like Passover about celebrating God's past redemption of his people from slavery and his provision for them through the wilderness. Uh, the New Testament uh, sometimes describes Christians as sojourners. Uh, they, they say that our lives are parallel to the Israelites wandering in the wilderness uh, of this world. We're plodding on toward the promised land of heaven. We haven't arrived there yet. And so today, even though we don't have this festival required for us anymore, God still wants us to remember and to celebrate how he's rescued us from slavery to sin and to death. He wants us to celebrate how he's provided for us in the barren places of the world and how he will continue to do so. 
So that's that first chapter, chapter 23 on sacred time. Uh, He tells Israel, I want you to be regularly setting aside time to celebrate and remember who I am and what I'm doing for you. Uh, Not only that I've created you, that's part of it, Uh, remembering and celebrating that God's a creator, that entails recognizing our dependence, it entails being generous with what God's given us, it entails resting from our work. Uh, But God also tells them, I want you to take regular time to remember that I'm your redeemer, that I've rescued you. Uh, And these kinds of festivals are marked by repentance, but also rejoicing. And so today we look back at what Jesus has done for us in his death and his resurrection, and we look forward uh, to the day when he returns to heal and to restore all things. Uh, The weekly Sabbath, we think, is the only part of all this that still applies directly, Uh, but historically the church has also taken time in the year uh, to celebrate and to remember different aspects of Jesus' life and ministry. And so this is why we now have things like Christmas and Good Friday and Easter and Pentecost. And we don't think it's required for Christians to celebrate those things, but we think it's helpful. We think it's a good idea uh, in a parallel kind of way to Israel, remembering different things God had done for them in their history. But now you have chapter 24, where you have this interlude on sacred space. God is reminding Israel, uh, something he's already told them back in Exodus. He says, don't forget about how important it is that the priests maintain these special lamps that are inside the tabernacle. Uh, Don't forget how important it is that they bake these really big 12 loaves of bread and replace them every week. Um, The 12 loaves of bread there in the tabernacle represent the 12 tribes of Israel. And every uh, day, the priests had to be going into the tabernacle. This is one of their main parts of their job. They had to go into the tabernacle every day and and take care of the lamp. Uh, God says, do that to make sure that it's always shining on the bread. He specifically says, I want it to shine at the bread and on the bread. Uh, The idea, day and night, 24 hours a day, the idea is that God is always shining his loving presence on and among his people. He's always providing for them. That's why they're tied to bread. Bread in the Bible is a signal of God's provision. And so the point of having the lamp on all the time, God leaves the lights on all the time, is that he's showing that he's always at home with us. He's always here. He's always among us. He's always providing for us. It's why it's so important for God's people to live in a way that reflects his goodness and reflects his holiness because he's always with us. He's always taking care of us. We're his holy people. And so I think that's why it seems a little strange. I had to think about this for a while. I think that's why the instructions about lamps and bread are immediately followed by what seems like a very random story about two dudes getting in a fist fight. Uh, And then one of them angrily and spitefully curses God. And then so they say, well, what do we do? This is pretty serious. God tells Israel, well, you need to stone that guy to death. He needs to be executed. Uh, It's underscoring how seriously God takes his honor, how important it is to live in God's presence in a way that respects him, that shows reverence for him. And so then you have this turn halfway through the chapter in chapter 24, verse 17, the story about the two guys fighting, one of them has to get executed. You then have a reminder uh, about how seriously God takes murder, uh, but also about um, how seriously he takes um, injuring other people, harming them, uh, and even their property. Uh, There's even a bit in here about how we should treat animals well. I think the basic idea is that those who are living in God's sacred space, those who live where God is present in all of his life, Uh, those people need to protect and defend life. Uh, Not just in serious things like murder, but even in more day-to-day things like how you treat other people's stuff 
and even how you treat animals. God's very concerned that we revere life. And so that brings us to chapter 25, where we're back to sacred time. Chapter 23 was dealing with sacred time in regards to weekly Sabbath and then annual festivals, things that you did every year. Uh, But now you move to a larger time frame. You have in 25, you have a Sabbath year, something that happens every seven years. And then you also have a super Sabbath year, something that happens every seventh, seventh year. So after every 49th year, the 50th year is now the super Sabbath year. They called it the Jubilee. That comes from a Hebrew word that means horn. They would blow on their horns to announce that it had come. Uh, Like the Sabbath day, like the harvest festivals, the Sabbath year, this is now every seventh year, special year, that emphasizes that God is a creator, that God is taking care of us. God says here, Every six years you should sow your field, but in the seventh year there shall be a Sabbath of solemn rest for the land. And so the Israelites, every seven years, they were to take a whole year where they didn't uh, sow any more seed. They didn't do any more work on their farms officially. They didn't harvest anything with any of their tools. Uh, They didn't go and gather grapes out of their vineyards. But God says, just let it grow wild every seven years for an entire year. Uh, No official farm work. Uh, During that year, anybody, but uh, God says, particularly immigrants and poor people, uh, they should be able to go out and just gather whatever happens to be growing on its own. Uh, God even says there that I want uh, the animals, and I want the wild animals to have a lot to eat. Uh, It's just for them to kind of go eat whatever they feel like. Later on in the chapter, uh, God anticipates that the people are going to wonder, well, how is this possible? Uh, Where are we going to get food uh, if we aren't doing any work? You you know, we're farmers. You have to sow if you want to get a harvest later on. But God says, don't worry. I will ensure that you have a huge harvest in the last normal year. It's going to give you so much food that you'll have plenty to eat all through this weird year where you're just kind of going out as hunter-gatherers, kind of. Um, And so God is emphasizing for the people that he's going to provide for them. Every seven years, this really significant way of remembering uh, that God takes care of you. God can provide way more than um, you ordinarily could. It's it's kind of a miracle every seven years. God's going to give them lots and lots of food. But it's also uh, a way for Israel and for us to remember that God is the ultimate landlord. God is the ultimate owner of the planet. Adam and Eve were created as stewards of the Garden of Eden. Uh, And what's interesting is you read the very beginning of the Bible, is that when God creates Adam and Eve, he puts them in a garden, but then he commissions them to cultivate that garden more, to make it more beautiful. But he also tells them, now I want you to take the garden and spread it over the whole entire earth. I want you to go, and he calls it subduing the earth. I want you to turn the whole entire planet into a beautiful garden. You and all your kids, have lots and lots of kids, and go out and be gardeners, make everything really beautiful. And so when Adam and Eve sin against God, God curses the earth, but he also curses childbearing, so that this task of cultivating the earth uh, with lots of uh, human descendants, all of that now is going to become deeply painful and very difficult. But the basic mission is still there. It gets renewed uh, after the flood with Noah. God kind of gives the same instructions. Now go back out, fill up the earth, uh, put it, uh, make it beautiful, cultivate it. The expanding human family, uh, and this extends to today, the ex- human family is meant to steward and cultivate all the resources and the produce and the creatures of the earth to God's glory and to humanity's good. And so this is actually, all of us in our own small ways, this is what all of us are doing in our work every day. 
This is what we're doing uh, in our education, kids. You're in school. This is what you're learning how to do. You're learning how to do this well uh, for God's glory. Uh, it's what people are doing when they create artwork, when they create music. Uh, it's what we're doing when we're parenting our kids. We're all training to do this, to, to offer to God the planet and its resources in a way that honors him and builds up our neighbors. Israel's Sabbath year, every seventh year, was a reminder of this great mission that they have under God as their landlord, uh, that God is the ultimate owner of all things, and that we're here to work under his commands. We're here to work with his generous provision. He'll always give us what we need to do what he wants us to do. And so today, of course, we don't have this Sabbath year anymore. Uh, the promised land of Israel uh, over there on the east side of the Mediterranean, that piece of real estate uh, is no longer promised unique and miraculous productivity every seven years. Uh, the church is no longer authorized to come to you and say, hey, you need to let your raised beds grow wild. It's one of those years again. Uh, no more getting tomatoes. Uh, just let it do its thing. But the mission of Jesus' church extends to the entire planet. Uh, just before he ascends into heaven, he gathers his disciples and he says, I want you to go out and make disciples in all the nations. I want you to call people uh, not only to know God as their creator, which we should do, that includes faithfully stewarding the things that God's given us, uh, but also, Jesus says, and ultimately what I want you to do is go out and teach people that God can be their redeemer, that Jesus has come to renew and to restore by dying for our sins on the cross. And so we, it's not just that God kind of has lost his interest in the earth uh, with you know, Israel not having a special status anymore. It's actually that the entire thing has been expanded. Jesus says, no, now the entire planet is the promised land. Go out and subdue it again, just like Adam and Eve were supposed to do. But we do it particularly by proclaiming this good news about Jesus. So that's this Sabbath year law, mainly emphasizing that God's a creator that the world belongs to him, that we're the caretakers here. Uh, but you also get this beautiful picture of redemption in this super Sabbath year, the Jubilee year. You start hearing about it in chapter 25, verse 8. Uh, this was supposed to happen after every seventh Sabbath year, and so after every 49th year, you have a 50th year. That's the Jubilee year. Uh, it was a really special year. It begins on the Day of Atonement, which is in the fall. They would blow trumpets really loud, and they'd say, okay, this is it. The year of Jubilee has arrived. It was kind of like a big reset button for property and for people in the promised land of Israel. Uh, first, it resets property. God says in chapter 25, verse 23, he says, the land shall not be sold in perpetuity. The land is mine. See, there's that idea again. For you are strangers and sojourners with me. And so in all the country you possess, you shall allow a redemption of the land. Uh, you can see here, uh, that the word redemption is a financial term. Uh, it refers to buying something back. It often refers to buying slaves. God allots the promised land to the 12 tribes of Israel. He says, I'm going to take it away from the Canaanites. They have not used it well. They have not acted how I want them to, and so I'm going to take them out of it, and I'm going to give it to you. Uh, but God says to them, because it's mine, because I'm the one giving it to you, you are not allowed to permanently sell off your family's rural land to somebody else. At most, he gives them permission to lease it to somebody until the next Jubilee year. And so people knew when this year was coming and they would set their rents and their prices in light of it. Uh, the closer you are to the next reset, uh, the less you're going to pay for something. 
uh, your family's original allotment had to stay within your extended family. It had to go back to your extended family. But, of course, when you actually kind of sit down and do the numbers, uh, after a few generations, uh, the amount of land per family would end up actually being really tiny, almost insignificant. Uh, but God allows for urban housing to be sold and bought permanently. You also hear in verse 25 uh, that the extended family, uh, if you were to lease out part of your land for whatever reason, uh, your extended family was able and even expected to help their family members redeem their land to get it back to them. Uh, they, you were expected to do this before the Jubilee year arrived. And so this is uh, it's a job that the Bible calls the kinsman redeemer. This is your family member, your cousin or your brother or somebody who comes along and says, I'm going to help you. I'm going to do something you can't do for yourself. I'm going to help you get back into your land. And again, the law does not apply directly anymore, but it gives us a couple of principles, I think. Uh, first of all, there is a principle here uh, echoed all through the Bible and the New Testament about extended family being the primary means of social welfare for the poor. Uh, this is something the New Testament explicitly says. Uh, extended family are the first line of caring for the poor, even before the church. Uh, and the, the historical teaching of Christians on how to care for the poor has made a really big point of this, of those who are closest to the problem should be the ones to be solving it and working on it. Institutions and policies that undermine or disincentivize people from close and helping relationships with their family are profoundly detrimental to the poor. The redemption of property also helps us to see that God is ultimately concerned not just with restoring and redeeming people, but also place. Also place. The ultimate redemption uh, at the end of history is not just about human fuzzy souls kind of drifting off into some kind of ether, uh, but ultimately the, the final redemption is about God redeeming this world uh, as a physical place where God will live with us in our physical bodies forever and ever in perfect goodness and holiness and beauty. Unlike all other religions, uh, Christianity and Judaism say the point is to get back to this world, not to escape from it. And so we look forward to God redeeming not just us as people, but also our place and our property. But the Jubilee was not just about redeeming property. It's also about redeeming people, about redeeming slaves. I don't have time this morning to go into a full-on explanation of what the Bible does or doesn't teach about slavery. Uh, but I will say that the Old Testament laws on slavery, which don't apply anymore, but they do clearly rule out the evil and the vicious systems of the Roman Empire and of the transatlantic chattel slave system. The Old Testament law, in many ways, is describing a system that looks a lot like indentured servitude uh, or something more contemporary for us. It would look a lot like a long internship, a long apprenticeship. Under the Old Testament law, slavery was almost always something that you voluntarily entered into because your life was so bad that the alternative was starvation. Slaves, God says in his law, slaves are supposed to be treated like family members. You're supposed to provide for their needs. Uh, even when they're done, you're supposed to send them out with tools and with money and resources so they can go start work on their own. Uh, Israelites were not allowed. Uh, they were explicitly forbidden from returning uh, slaves who had fled. And God also says that slaves are allowed to flee anytime they want for any reason. They can flee from their masters, and then the Israelites cannot return them. Uh, if somebody injures their slave, God says in the Old Testament, they must be let go immediately, no questions asked. 
And so you can hear, this is very different than many of the systems of slavery that have existed through history. Uh, but on top of that, God also says in Exodus that capturing people uh, in order to make them slaves, kidnapping people, uh, even being in possession of somebody who was kidnapped to become a slave, all of those, God says, are capital crimes. They deserve the death penalty. And so for centuries, Christians have wrongly used the Old Testament to defend uh, a system of slavery that is profoundly evil and unbiblical. But back to Leviticus. There's a law about how uh, Israelites are supposed to require, or they're supposed to provide jobs or charitable interest-free loans to somebody who's in really dire straits. So this chapter is envisioning people kind of falling into deeper and deeper levels of poverty. Before you get to the part where you're so, things are so bad that I'm going to starve and I need to sell myself into slavery, before you get to that point, God says, when people start losing out on things and they don't have things, you need to try, find ways to give them work. Uh, I want them to live with you. I want you to provide jobs for them. And God says, uh, I want you to provide loans to them uh, that you are not going to demand interest back from them. It's a charitable loan. Uh, it's similar to how um, today in our church, when we um, give money out of our benevolence fund, we never ever say to any of you, uh, now that'll be 10% a year, and we're looking to make money off of you uh, by being kind to you. We just say, here you go. Uh, if you want to repay it, great. If you don't, that's okay. Uh, it's a similar kind of idea. Um, somebody would be in this bad situation where they need a charitable loan or they need a, a job because they have sold all their land. They've, they've leased out all of their family inheritance, and they have nothing left to lease. And so God says in that situation, now you need to start giving them charitable uh, opportunities and loans. But then if things are still so bad, for some reason you can't get one of these loans, you can't get one of these jobs, things are so bad that you're about to starve, God says, okay, you can sell yourself into slavery. And so even in that state, God says, if you eventually accumulate enough wealth to where you can buy your own freedom, uh, maybe one of your family members comes along and they can buy your freedom for you. So this is again the kinsman redeemer role. Uh, but even if neither of those happen, things are really bad. You can't buy yourself out. Your family can't even buy you out. In that case, God still has an escape hatch for you. In the Jubilee year, your master has to release you back to your land, uh, whether the master is an Israelite or not. And so the motivation behind this redemption of slaves, the motivation is the same as all the laws about giving the land back every seven years and about the land going back to the original owners every 50 years. Remember, the motivation there is that God is the ultimate owner of the promised land. And so in the same way, these rules about redeeming people uh, have the same motivation. God is the ultimate owner of us. Uh, God says this in verse 55. It's to me that the people of Israel are servants, which is the same word that can be translated also as slaves. Uh, they are my servants whom I brought out of the land of Egypt. I am the Lord, your God. And so just like God owns our stuff, God owns us. And it's because of that that he's concerned uh, that they, we, they and we are treated well and treated fairly by others. Uh, there's a lot of rich principles here, I think, that can help us to think through how to care for the poor, uh, particularly the poor within uh, God's people. Um, once again, you hear about the importance of extended family. Extended family members were expected to redeem their uh, family out of slavery. Uh, we also see here the importance of providing work and capital for the poor so that they can support themselves. Uh, the importance of uh, God's people looking for opportunities to provide generous loans and gifts to those in serious emergency situations uh, because we remember that we're ultimately God's servants and that he has been generous to us. Uh, but we also see here 
uh, this principle of providing contingencies, providing off-ramps for people that cannot possibly repay their debts. Uh, we see here uh, God wanting his people to issue uh, these arrangements that keep people locked up in debt forever and ever and ever. God says, I don't want you doing those kinds of things. I don't want you keeping the poor stuck where they are. They need ways to get out of it. But most of all, when the New Testament talks about this Jubilee year stuff, which it talks about a couple times, uh, when it talks about it, it wants us to especially see how Jesus has done these things. It wants us to see how Jesus is our kinsman redeemer. In Luke chapter 4, at the beginning of his ministry, Jesus reads from this passage in Isaiah 61, Teresa read this for us, that describes how God's going to redeem his people in an ultimate and final jubilee. That's what Isaiah means by the year of the Lord's favor. Uh, and that God's going to do this by sending a, a spirit-filled prophet, somebody anointed to do what God wants. He's going to come and he's going to proclaim liberty to the captives. He's going to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. It's a jubilee idea. And so Jesus reads that passage and he says, it's about me. Uh, it's happening. This is here. It's the year of the Lord's favor. Jubilee has come. Uh, and people around, of course, in his hometown have grown up with him. They saw him working as a carpenter, and they can't believe it. They think he's ridiculous, and they want to kill him even over it. But Jesus is saying, uh, no, I'm God's Messiah. I'm God's prophet who's come to do these things. He depicts this through all kinds of miracles. He rescues people uh, from demonic oppression. He rescues them from physical ailments and afflictions. But best of all, Jesus depicts this through forgiving people's sins. Uh, today, the church of Jesus proclaims this same good news about how Jesus has come to rescue us from our oppressors. The best parts about Jesus' deliverance, the best parts about the jubilee that Jesus has brought, the best parts of it have already come. They're already here. We have them in full possession. Jesus has forgiven our sins. He's released us from bondage to evil and to the devil and to fear of death. We don't need to be enslaved to those things anymore. Uh, but a lot of things about the jubilee deliverance that Jesus brings are yet to come. Uh, or they haven't come in their fullness. We wait for him to come back and finish his work. We still suffer. We still die. Uh, we still don't see the victory that we want over sin. And we're still sojourning with God through the wilderness. We haven't arrived in the promised land yet. But even now, uh, as we live in between those two things, we have the best things about the Jubilee, even as we look forward to the other wonderful things about the Jubilee. Even now, we begin as a community, or we should begin as a community, to reflect this coming redemption uh, as we anticipate it. Uh, we show that in our relationships with each other, in our concern uh, for caring for other people, particularly the poor. We are headed to the promised land. Jesus is our jubilee. He's our kinsman redeemer. He's come to rescue us, to bring us in to God's special sacred time and place. Every day as a Christian, every time we gather as Christians on Sundays, we are anticipating that together, and we're rejoicing in that together. Let's pray. Father, help us uh, to live in light of what you've already given us in Jesus as our jubilee. Uh, thank you for all the wonderful things you've given us in him, uh, the, the redemption, the freedom, the release from bondage. Uh, help us as we look forward to creation's final uh, release from its bondage uh, and us from our bondage to suffering and to death. Help us even now uh, to look for ways around us to care for people around us, to care for each other, uh, to fight against uh, injustice, to fight against uh, poverty uh, through giving of our time and our resources that you've already given us so generously. Lord, help us to be a community that reflects your coming redemption. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.